you. So please have your, your Bible open at Matthew 20, and let's dive into the Word of God tonight. I was just pondering recently a few, a few ideas that our society has and values that our society has, and probably many societies. And I was thinking a lot about greatness. What, what makes a great person? What makes a person significant? What makes them a very important person? You go to the airport, you see a VIP lounge. You, you've been in, you took me one once, didn't you? I don't know what we were doing there, but we went into the VIP lounge of the airport. Very important person. Who decides what is a very important person? Who makes that judgment about who's important? What gives a human being worth and significance? I think we don't have to look far, do we, to see that the world we live in judges people's status and affords them status based on certain criteria People may not say this openly, but there are, there are standards by which people judge other people and judge them as to whether they're important and significant or whether they're insignificant and lower down the pecking order. Physical appearance. We were talking yesterday to the children in the kids' club about the importance of having a healthy body image. So many young people, particularly young women, are slaves to this idea of a certain kind of physical appearance giving you your worth and value. Education, educational attainment, qualifications, that's another way that people judge others to be of worth or significance. Perhaps your social class. We, in this country, we're very good, aren't we? At, you know, you watch any kind of comedy series from the 70s or the 80s, or any, any comedy series, there's always some kind of social pecking order. You know, working-class people, lower-middle-class people, upper-middle-class people, toffs. I don't know what it's like in other countries. Your intelligence. Some people are naturally more intelligent than others, perhaps, or appear to be, and that can give you greater kudos. Your career. That's, a, that's an idol, isn't it? If ever there was an idol in our society, your career. How far you've risen up the ladder how much you've achieved. And I would have put it to you tonight that our society is obsessed with self-promotion, self-esteem, self-fulfillment, often at the expense of others. Another trait that we see in our society is an obsession with my rights. Rights. My rights. My right to be understood my right to, to identify myself in the way that I want to identify myself, my right to not be offended, all sorts of rights, and people are very jealous and zealous about their rights to the point of hatred of others. This is, you know, you, how dare you say that to me? Don't you know how important I am? Today's passage speaks into these, these traits in our society, and I think it really actually attacks them with a kind of full-on barrage of cannon, attacking 
the values of our society and how it places worth and value upon humans. Let me just set the scene for a moment. So we're moving towards the cross as we go through the Gospel of Matthew. Jesus, by this point, has told his disciples on many occasions that he will suffer at the hands of his enemies and will be raised again. We first saw it in chapter 16. Remember, I think I was preaching about that, when when Jesus tells his disciples about the cross and Peter dares to rebuke him and challenge him and is himself rebuked by Jesus. He says, you know, you don't have in mind the things of God, you have in mind the things of men. What we see today in our story today is another example of the disciples, well-meaning perhaps, but having in mind not the things of God, but the things of men. In chapter 17, a few weeks ago, might have, was it last week or two weeks ago, we read about the transfiguration, that wonderful event when Jesus appeared in his glory on the mountain. And with him were these very two, these two characters from the story, James and John and Peter as well. And they saw this vision of Christ in his splendor. Moses and Elijah conversing with him. And Jesus, he spoke even on that occasion about his death with Moses and Elijah. He mentioned his forthcoming trial and death and suffering. And then later in that same chapter, Jesus reminded his disciples, he said, don't tell anybody about these things until the Son of Man has risen from the dead. Again, he reminds them about what must happen to him. We pick up the story again in chapter 20, verse 17. Today's story, we pick it up with Jesus once again talking about his coming suffering to his disciples. He more or less repeats his earlier words, doesn't he? In chapter 20, verse 17, 18 and 19. He says once again, We are going to Jerusalem and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death. We'll turn him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. And on the third day, he'll be raised to life. Have you noticed how specific, how detailed, how accurate Jesus' predictions of his suffering were? He doesn't just say in a general sense, does he, that I must die and be raised to life. He talks about every detail of the process, and actually quite gruesome detail. Why does he do this? Is he trying to discourage his disciples? Is he trying to make them downcast and despondent? I think quite the opposite. The fact that Jesus predicts time and time again the details of his suffering is actually meant to be an encouragement for his disciples. When they see these things starting to take place, they can follow this chain of events through to its victorious conclusion. Oh yeah, Jesus, he mentioned this, and he mentioned this, and this has happened, and this is happening. And we know that the end will be victorious. There will be a resurrection, there will be a triumph, there will be a victory. It's actually meant to comfort the disciples. That Jesus is fully in control of the situation. That Jesus knows full well what's going to happen to him, and he's not trying to avoid that. He's going towards that with courage and fortitude and obedience Jesus is completely in control of this situation. He's not a helpless victim. But he's moving towards that as a step of obedience. Ponder for a minute, if you will, how horrific 
these predictions are that Jesus makes, if you can call them predictions, about his own sufferings. Imagine for any Jewish man the idea of being betrayed to your enemies, to Gentiles, to pagans, being betrayed by your own people, by the chief priests. They're supposed to be the guardians of righteousness in the nation, guardians of the moral and spiritual life of the nation, being betrayed and turned over to the pagan Gentiles. In Mark's Gospel, Mark adds a few more details. He talks about people spitting on the Son of Man, flogging him, spitting on him. What an awful thing that would be for any human being to imagine any person in this room or any person in this town being spat upon, being flogged by the Roman whip, let alone one as precious as Jesus. What we see actually is absolute abuse, disregard for dignity, for human for human decency, as the Lord Jesus is actually turned into a figure of mockery and scorn by wicked people. So we are seeing a season in the life of Jesus' ministry where he's heading towards the cross and he's telling his disciples again and again and again, reminding them, repeating himself, that this must happen. And what, what, what would you have thought would have been their reaction to hear the Lord talking about this, his great and sobering truths about his own suffering. Well, it would have been nice to think that they, they would have been sobered by this and saddened by it and very circumspect and very serious. Not thinking about themselves at all, but thinking about the, the great suffering and the trial, the, the awful horror of seeing their master being abused in this way. And that really sets the context of what we're reading about today with these two sons with their mother come to Jesus. They don't want to talk to him about his suffering. They don't want to talk to him about the abuse he was about to suffer. They come to him seeking their own glory. And isn't that a sad thing? Let's look at the request this woman makes. Verse 20, we see the mother of Zebedee's sons. These are James and John, the sons of thunder, long-standing disciples of Jesus, former fishermen. These men, they were part of this small inner circle that Jesus seems to have had amongst his disciples. Along with Peter, they were often privileged to be with him at times like the transfiguration, to see wondrous things, to be with him at the raising of Jairus' daughter, and ultimately in Gethsemane as well, to be with him at that time when the others were left to one side. He took them with him. It wouldn't be surprising, would it, if these men, James and John, felt they were particularly privileged and in some sense special and honoured because of their relationship with Jesus as part of this so-called inner circle amongst the disciples. What did this woman want for her sons well it's clear they were coming as a delegation mark says that the sons themselves asked the question asked the favor of jesus matthew says it was the woman the mother who made the request the fact is they all came together they discussed it they planned it they came to jesus as a unit to make this request to him perhaps feeling there was more force in numbers i don't know what did she ask jesus to do have you noticed the first thing she says? She says, she asks a favour of him. She doesn't say what the favour is. It says in Mark's account, 
Teacher, we would like you to do for us whatever we ask. As though Jesus was about to promise, whatever you want shall be done for you without even knowing what it was. Of course, the Lord did know anyway, didn't he, what was going on in their hearts. He knew straight away. But it's a bit crafty, isn't it? Come to Jesus expecting him to just to give them a, you know, whatever you ask it will be done for you. Jesus says, what, what is it that you want? And he knows. Verse 21, grant that one of these two sons of mine may sit at your right and the other at your left in your kingdom. At the time of Jesus, there was a great emphasis on a pecking order and symbolic symbols of authority. That's why when Jesus talks about the wedding, the seat of honor at the wedding, and what what they're envisaging is a time when Jesus comes in his glory Perhaps they didn't fully understand how that was going to happen, but that he would be there seated with 12 of them, six on each side, and they would be at his right and left hand, sitting on either side of him as ruling king in the place of honor and authority, judging the 12 tribes of Israel, or perhaps ruling the 12 tribes of Israel. Where does this idea come from? Well, if you recall a few weeks ago, Matthew chapter 19. I think it was even last week, wasn't it? It was last week. Jesus said, At the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, you who who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. So Jesus had said to them, as an encouragement to them, you who have followed me will sit on these twelve thrones, judging or ruling the twelve tribes of Israel. And you can imagine, they hadn't been thinking about anything else since that day, but this privilege that they were to be afforded, this honour, and their place in it. So I I could just imagine the disciples, after hearing this, Jesus has said we're going to sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. What What an amazing... Who would have thought it? Us, fishermen from Galilee, judging the 12 tribes of Israel, and pondering it and discussing it amongst themselves and with their mother as well. To be fair to these men... I do think they had a degree of faith. They weren't bad men. They were followers of Jesus. They loved the Lord. They were sincere. But they were so misguided, weren't they? They had a degree of faith. They they didn't believe the crucifixion of Jesus would be the end of Jesus. They looked beyond the crucifixion. They could see a time when Jesus would reign and sit on his throne and judge the nation. Whether they understood this to be a future celestial coming, heavenly coming, or whether they understood this to be an earthly kingdom that he would set up in Jerusalem, is not quite clear. But they did believe that there would be a victory, that Jesus would be king, that he would overcome and he would be raised to life. So there is a degree of faith that they show. They knew he was destined for glory. That much they got right, that he is destined for glory. They, they, they understood that bit. What did Jesus say? He said, he said to them before, ask and it will be given to you. He said to this a couple of weeks ago, we heard this. If two, two of you on earth agree about anything you ask for, it will be done for you by my Father in heaven. Perhaps they, they just took this, these words of Jesus, completely twisted them, and misunderstood them and said, okay, that's what we're going to do today. We're going to go, two of us together, and ask Jesus for this favor and he'll surely do it because he's promised to give us whatever we ask for. Whatever it was, that's, that's what they were 
were doing, coming to him to ask him to grant them the position of authority next to him in his coming kingdom. What can we learn from this? I think this this passage, this, this story of James and John, who are all too like us, exhibits some rather unpleasant characteristics of human nature. Let me read you, tell you what they are. The first one is this. Even in the face of Jesus' suffering and humility, we humans often think about our own prominence, ambitions, and importance. What a sad thing it would be for someone to hear about the cross, to hear about the suffering of the Lord, to hear about his humiliation, in a sense, and just to think about your own status and your own importance and your own ambitions. Imagine you had an elderly relative who called you one day and said, I've got a month to live, I've got a terminal illness, the doctors told me I haven't got long. You went and sat at his bedside and all you could talk about was the inheritance he was going to leave you. We would say, that's bad taste. That's insensitive. That's callous. And yet, I think pretty much that's what James and John were doing here. Lord Jesus was talking about terrible things. And yet, the first thing they could think about was coming to him to try to secure their place of glory. Is that all you can think about at a time like this? How does Jesus respond to that? I want you to notice how gentle Jesus is with his disciples, how lovingly he teaches them and disciples them. It takes a long time for a person to unlearn the ways of this world, to grow as a disciple of Jesus. All of us are still learning, aren't we? What does Jesus say? He says, you don't know what you're asking. Can you drink the cup I am going to drink? And Mark, in his account, adds this. Can you be baptised with the baptism I am baptised with? What is this cup that Jesus asked them if they can drink? I want you to to know that baptism and and the cup are euthanisms. They're, They're ways of expressing his suffering. In Luke 20 verse, Luke 12 verse 50, Jesus says, I've got a baptism to undergo, talking about his death. He describes his suffering as a baptism. What is a baptism? We had a baptism right here last week. When somebody goes into those waters, they're totally immersed in those waters, completely immersed and submerged in the water. Jesus is saying that his death and suffering will completely immerse him like a baptism, I believe. Completely submerge him, completely swamp him and overwhelm him. There will not be a single part of him that will escape the suffering. What about the cup? We remember, don't we, in the Old Testament, it talks about the cup of God's wrath. Jesus in Gethsemane prayed, didn't he? He prayed that the cup might be taken from him. The cup is a euphemism. It's another word of... A description of his suffering. What do you do when you drink a cup? You drink it to its dregs. It goes inside of you, fully, you know, it's fully immersed inside of you. It's absorbed by your body. 
The cup is an apt description of Jesus' suffering. He was completely, he drank it to its very dregs, to the utmost limit on that cross. Jesus asked his disciples, can you drink this cup? Can you be baptised with the baptism I'm about to be baptised with? So you've got the disciples who are soaring in the clouds with these grand visions of them lording it over their fellow disciples, including Peter, who wouldn't have been sitting next to Jesus. And Jesus brings them back down to earth with a bump, doesn't he? By asking this question, can you drink this cup? Can you be baptised with this baptism? Dear friends, it's very premature to be, to be thinking about the, the blessings of the coming age. To be focused all on that as though it were a done deal. As though it were, were a small matter to go through this life and enter glory and enter the kingdom. It was true then and it's true now that those who wanted to enter the kingdom of God, those who want to enter the kingdom of God must be prepared to share in the sufferings of Christ if they would share in his glory. That is, that is very clear in the word of God. That Christians must be prepared to suffer, to take up their cross, to follow wherever, wherever that path leads, to follow the Lord Jesus, whatever that entails. And there's a very good likelihood that will entail suffering of some kind for the sake of Christ. And Jesus says to his beloved disciples, James and John, he says, you know, can you... You're thinking about the glory to come on the other side of all this, but what about the immediate pressing concern that you have now is to make sure that you are prepared for this this life of obedience and discipleship because that must come before the glory. Just as Jesus had to face the cross before he was glorified and exalted to the right hand of God, so the disciples must also be prepared to suffer in this life before they would receive their reward. Can you drink this cup? What do they answer? We can. We can. I don't think they really understood what drinking the cup entailed, what it meant. But Jesus actually foresees that his disciples would, in a sense, drink that cup and be baptized with that baptism. He says it, doesn't he, in verse 20, in chapter 20, verse uh, 23. You will indeed drink from my cup, but to sit on my right hand and left is not for me to grant. As you know, James was the first of the twelve to be martyred, put to death for his faith, slain by the sword. And John, although he, he wasn't put to death for his faith, he suffered many trials along with the other apostles. And then died exiled to a lonely island for the sake of Christ. He knew suffering. Both those men tasted of that cup in some way. But neither of those men and no man can ever drink that cup to the extent that Jesus drank it. What really excites me about this scripture is it's one of the few places in the synoptic gospels where Jesus gives us a very clear hint about the meaning of the cross. Of course, I'm thinking about verse 28. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. 
Why did Jesus have to drink this cup? Why did he have to suffer that abuse? It was because it was, it was ordained by, by God that he should suffer on behalf of his people as a substitute. Shed his blood as a ransom to set his people free. Imagine I was in my yacht or perhaps my, my inflatable dinghy going around the Horn of Africa and I was captured by a load of pirates taken back to their ship and tied up and, and gagged, I suppose, and whatever else. And the pirate captain called Anya and said, we've got your husband and if you pay us lots of money, we'll release him. That would be a situation in which I could not get out of myself unless somebody, you know, the SAS came and rescued me or something like that and they probably wouldn't bother. But I would be completely trapped in, in that helpless condition unless my wife chose to, to pay a ransom price to set me free so that I might come home and see my children, my beloved Brighton, again. Ransom. Price that is paid to set someone else free. No money could ever pay the price for a human being to set, be set free from the bondage of sin. There was only one who could pay that price, only one who was innocent, who had never sinned, only one who could make that sacrifice and pay that, that ransom by shedding his own blood. It's very important as Christian people that we keep the cross of Jesus Christ, front and centre of what we're about. James and John were far too quick to, to gloss over the cross and the suffering to think about the glory. We should keep our eyes on the glory and on the prize. That's definitely true. But we should remember all the time the sacrifice that was made for us, the ransom, the blood of Jesus, which we'll remember tonight through the communion the Lord's Supper, that we might be set free. If you read the book of Corinthians, the Corinthian church, who were quite a worldly bunch at times, taking communion, the Lord's Supper, this, this remembrance of the Lord's death, and they were getting drunk and stuffing their faces and despising the poor and not recognising the body. You think, how, how can you, you marry those two things in your mind? You're supposed to be remembering the ultimate act of sacrifice and love and humiliation. And you're being selfish and greedy and despising others, brothers and sisters in Christ. That's why we need to keep the cross at the centre of all that we do. Sometimes we talk about grace, don't we, as being God's riches at Christ's expense. And that is true. What wonderful riches we have at Christ's expense. What wonderful privileges he's, he's bought for us. And yet, there's a danger if we forget Christ's expense, isn't there? The Christian faith is not just a vehicle for our own ambitions. A platform for us to rise up the ladder, to achieve our purposes and our own plans. The Christian faith is not just a vehicle for us to achieve, make our dreams come true and be, you know, find happiness. Of course, we, we find great joy in the Lord, don't we? 
And the Lord gives us so many blessings. There are, there are versions of Christianity that completely ignore the cross. And the danger of that is it becomes a self-centered, man-centered gospel. No gospel at all, actually. Let's keep the cross at the center. Remember the sacrifice the Lord has made and be sober about it. Be joyful because we're on the other side of the cross, the other side of the resurrection. But let's also remember the price that was paid for us. That is a very healthy thing for Christian people to do. It's not just healthy, it's essential for the life of a church, for the health of a church. Another application, brothers and sisters, don't be blasé, don't be casual, don't be arrogant about the need to suffer and stand for Christ. What is, I'll read this to you, although we haven't got much time. Luke 21, verse 34. Jesus is talking about the, the end of all things, I believe. He says this, Luke 21, verse 34. Be careful or your hearts will be weighed down with dissipation, drunkenness, and the anxieties of life. And that day will close on you unexpectedly like a trap. And then I'll go to verse 36. Be always on the watch and pray that you may be able to escape all that is about to happen and that you may be able to stand before the Son of Man. Praying, watching, watching over your soul, the disciplines of the Christian life, reading the word, meeting with God's people, praying, serving, being vigilant, all these things are so important for us to keep us on that path, to stop us from straying away. Don't think that it's an easy thing to live the Christian life. This week, when I was away at my parents, I was thinking a lot about suffering. I was thinking a lot about the, the, the life that I live. I thought, would I be prepared to suffer for the sake of Christ? To what extent am I willing to be broken by God that I might become Christ-like? We all pray, don't we, that the Lord would make us more like Jesus. But I think the biblical pattern for that is it often comes at a cost. Sanctification, the Lord's discipline, is painful. And there are prices to be paid We want the glory of heaven, don't we? Rightly so, we should want the glory of heaven. We have to live this life first. Can we drink his cup? Are we willing to make those sacrifices to serve, to take up our crosses and follow the Lord Jesus? I'm not talking just to you, I'm talking to myself. Am I up for it? Would I be willing for that to happen or would I actually choose a nice, quiet, easy life and forego the great blessings that would come from obedience and sacrifice if we were to be called to those things. The second trait, unpleasant trait, that James and John exhibit, which is all too common for us, is this. Having already been given and promised extraordinary privileges, we think that we deserve more. When you think where James and John were coming from, that provincial fishermen in a, in a kind of obscure village or small town in Galilee, and what the Lord has done for them by calling them to be his apostles, his followers, and then the promises that he makes to them. 
Isn't it a wonderful thing? You know, for them to even be included in the kingdom would be a wonderful thing. We've seen already Jesus promises them that they would sit on the thrones next to him at his coming, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Ponder this, none of Israel's prophets, priests or kings would have that honour. Moses, Abraham, David, none of them would sit on the thrones of Israel, judging or ruling the people. But these 12 fishermen, tax collectors, zealots, I think there's a connection between this and last week's parable, the parable of the workers in the vineyard. I haven't seen that connection before, but I think there is a connection. The landowner in the parable represents God. The landowner calls people to work in his vineyard in the same way that God graciously calls people into his kingdom to serve him as his people. The landowner promised them a fair reward for their labour, denarius, day's wages. And God also, to all his people, promises a fair reward, the reward of eternal life. Actually, we know it's all by grace because just like those, those people standing idle in the marketplace, the landowner called them in to work, gave them a job to do. So God calls us by grace to work in his harvest field. In the evening, those workers were paid what was due to them, what had been promised. And in the same way, there will be a day of reckoning, a judgment day, when God calls his people before him and he gives them what he has promised, eternal life. Some Christians will have worked hard, laboured, and spent themselves on behalf of the gospel. Some will have not done so much. Some will have endured great hardships for the sake of Christ, and some would have endured very little, perhaps. Would have had easy lives, those that have worked harder, that have endured more suffering, might think that they, they deserve some kind of greater honour than those that have not worked to the same extent. But the parable made it clear that the, although the, 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 the owner of the vineyard, God, is fair and just, kind, he's also generous, he's also sovereign, it's his right to do what he wants with his own money. And the Lord can bless whom he chooses. And if he chooses to bless some more than others, that's his prerogative. That's his right to do so. And none of us can say that he's unfair to do that. The landowner, the rich man, the master, reserved the right to dispense his blessings as he saw fit. And God is exactly the same. I think that's the point Jesus is making here when he says these places are are reserved for those for whom the Father has prepared them. I wonder if James and John felt that they had had a special claim on the blessings of God, that they deserved this more, because they'd borne the heat of the day, like those workers that had worked and and laboured, they'd given up the family business, they left their father and the boat and the hired men. Were they trying to negotiate a deal with Jesus before the payday came? I wonder, because... We all think it's unfair, don't we? Instinctively, we think this is an unfair story, but actually it's very fair. Well, James and John anticipated that they felt they had worked harder and done more and suffered more, and therefore they were going to say to Jesus, you actually should reward us more by giving us this special honour because we've actually worked harder than these other people. 
But the workers, the workers in the vineyard and the workers in God's kingdom do not have the right to tell the master how to dispense his generosity. If he wants to be gracious towards one in a special way, that's his right to do so. None of us can say he's unfair. Let me say this. We Christians, we're terrible, aren't we, sometimes, about, about wanting more, wanting more prominence, wanting more importance, wanting to be recognised, wanting more material goods, wanting more status. And I think we need to learn to be grateful. We need to learn to be grateful for what God has given us already, that the enormous blessings he's already promised us and given us. We should not think that our efforts for God somehow qualify us for additional blessings. We're unworthy servants. We've only done our duty. We should be pleased to eat the crumbs that fall from the master's table. We should be happy to be gatekeepers in the house of our God rather than dwell in the tents of the wicked, as the psalm says. Let's be be grateful for the provision God has made for us, the grace that he's given us, and not always be seeking greater and greater and greater things and say, Lord, whatever you want to do, whomever you want to bless, that's your right. I've got no say in that whatsoever. and I'm happy with whatever you do because you are God and I am not. And you have the right to do that. The third unpleasant tendency that humans have, this is the last one, is that we make requests that God is not pleased to answer. Why does God not answer our prayers sometimes? Sometimes we ask for things which are outside of God's will. If we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. If we ask for things that are... If I, if I were to pray tonight, Lord, please make me wake up tomorrow the world's strongest man... I doubt very much that prayer would be answered because why would God want me to be the world's strongest man? It has its attraction sometimes. Sometimes we ask for things that are not in God's will, in line with God's will. James and John were doing that, weren't they? They were asking for something which which was not in line with the purposes of God. Jesus said, it's not for me to grant this. This is God's right to do this, God the Father, not my decision. Sometimes God does not answer our prayers because our motives are wrong. In the case of James and John, both these things were true. They were asking for things which were outside of God's will, and they were asking with wrong motives. Look what happens in verse 24. So the other ten disciples hear about this. They're indignant with the brothers for asking for this favour. I don't think the the other ten disciples were indignant because they they were scandalised that James and John had dared to ask such an an inappropriate and worldly question to Jesus. Most probably they were, they were you know, thinking about their own prominence. And how dare you think, you think you're better than us? What makes you think you're, you're special? Sit at the right and left hand of Jesus. They were all, all a bunch of selfish so-and-sos, weren't they? Just like us.
What does James say in the book of James, a different James? When you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. We need to be very careful that when we pray, we don't pray for things that are outside of God's will or things which are are based on selfish motives and, and base motives. What does Jesus say about great greatness, just to finish off? And this is quite simple, so I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this because I think it speaks for itself. Jesus calls them together. He teaches them. He says this, You know the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. Their high officials exercise authority over them. Of course, he had in mind the Roman emperors. What a nasty bunch they were. They ruled with the iron fist. They oppressed people, they they liquidated their enemies, they murdered people, they instilled fear, they exalted their own glory, they lived in luxury at the expense of others, they insisted on their own way. All this built on a very unattractive foundation of pride, worship of self, entitlement. That's just the way of the world, that's how human leaders by and large behave, that's just normal. These men were the worst kind of leaders, despots, tyrants, men who ruled by fear and oppressed others. But in Jesus, there was a man who truly deserved greatness, but a man who ruled in a very different way, a man who ruled by humbling himself, a man who did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life, as we've seen already, as a ransom for many. Those, those Gentile leaders did not deserve the pomp, the praise of men, the adoration, the deification that people gave them. Jesus deserved all that. But he, he laid all that aside. He emptied himself. Became a servant. In fact, he became the servant. God's anointed servant. And he emptied himself to, to the, the fullest possible extent. He humbled himself. Completely poured out his life. His people. Jesus said, you, you know that's how the world works. That's how the Gentiles, the rulers of the Gentiles, lord it over others, but not so with you. Such behavior has no place in the kingdom of God. It's inappropriate, it's alien for the people of God. The things that the people of this world think give you a high status and not of any importance in the kingdom of God. What is highly valued amongst men is detestable in the sight of God. It's very important that when we we make judgments about other people, which we all do, I think, sometimes, we don't judge them on worldly criteria. We don't judge their worth and their status based on the things that this world tells us are important. Who is the greatest in the kingdom of God? Jesus tells us, doesn't he? Instead, verse 26, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. Whoever wants to be first among you must be your slave. The one that God honours most, the one that God is most pleased with, the one that is greatest in a sense in the kingdom, is not the one who exalts himself. 
not the one who lords it over others. He's not the one who promotes himself or herself. He's not the one who wants to be served, but it's the one who serves, the one who most resembles the Lord Jesus. There is no place for self-seeking behaviour in the church, for self-promotion, for ambitions, for bullying other people. We all know how toxic it is when a church gets a leader who bullies people and lords it over people and lives in luxury at the expense of his people. But it's not just about leaders, it's about all of us. The Lord would have us serve one another, love one another, lay down our lives for each other. It's a difficult thing, isn't it? Because we're bombarded by these voices from the world which tell us we need to act in a certain way and behave in a certain way and look a certain way. What God looks at is the heart of a person. We need gentleness, don't we, and humility. We need to prefer other people to ourselves. We need brokenness. We need Christ-like love. We need to let other people, be content to let other people be recognised and promoted and honoured above us. And these things are difficult. Who is sufficient for these things? May God give us grace to be a church. This is so true of all of us. We're, not to, we're so different from the world. It's like chalk and cheese. We're, not, we're nothing like the world. We're not to be like the world. We, we allow ourselves to be like the world, to become like the world, to, to drift back into the world. But we're to be different. People full of sacrificial love and kindness. It's not easy, is it? We look to Jesus, served us, gave his life for us. I think in these days with this coronavirus, we have, we'll have many opportunities actually to show God's love and to show a difference by the way that we live and to offer that hope to, the, to this dying world. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the teaching you gave James and John and the apostles about the importance of humility and self-sacrifice. We pray you forgive us, Lord, for being like them at times, Lord, thinking about our own prominence and glory and how we can be recognised and honoured rather than humbling ourselves at the cross. Thank you for your great sacrifice, Lord Jesus, that you were willing to make for us the love that caused you to go to the cross to be a ransom, to set us free from our sin. We bless you, we praise you. Pray this church would be a place where each of us learns what it means to be a disciple, learns what it means to serve one another in love, true humility, brokenness. Please forgive us, Lord, if we've done anything which has not been honouring to you. And please help us, Lord, to be, in a sense, Lord, pleasing to you, because... We want to suffer and be prepared to stand for you and serve you. So Lord, please help us in these things. Amen.